Okay, before we conclude Revelation 5 tonight, I want to spend a few moments reminding us of some important things. Let's start with where we are in the book right now. We've done chapter 1, seeing the risen and victorious Savior. We've studied the guidepost to understanding the book. We've had studies on what Jesus said to the seven churches. We've done chapter 4, where we were able to read about and study John's glimpse behind the spiritual curtain where he's given access into heaven and the Spirit on the Lord's day to see God the Father on his throne being worshipped. Now we are in chapter 5 and we are considering the book with the seven seals. Now, let's go back to a few of these guideposts real quick. It's always good to just keep reminding ourselves of these guideposts as we continue to go through this book. This is going to be something that we're going to be continuing to do quite a bit because it's easy to forget. It's easy to get lost in all of this and, and let that Western culture thinking just creep back in our minds. So it's, it's important that we keep reminding ourselves of this stuff. The language of Revelation is unique, isn't it? Revelation 1 and verse 1, how is this book written? Somebody tell me, how is it written? What kind of style? It's apocalyptic. It's, a, it's signs and, and symbols. Revelation 1 and verse 1 says that this message was communicated, and a more proper translation is it was signified. It was signified to the Apostle John. It's important to remember that especially, especially now, especially as we start going throughout the rest of this book. It's important to keep that in the forefront of your mind. None of this is literal. None of this is to be treated in a literal way. This is signs and symbols. God wants us to get that so much so that he put it in the first verse of the book. Revelation has a time frame. When were the majority of the things of the book take place? Soon. These things would soon come to pass. Audience relevance is important here. This is from the time perspective of the original audience. If it's not from their perspective, then it gives them no encouragement. It's got to be from their perspective. So what is the original targeted audience? This one should be easy. Seven churches. Seven churches of Asia, the first century Christians those who were being persecuted by what I believe to be a, a very wicked and corrupt Roman Empire. Now, this book, Revelation, let's remind ourselves of the purpose of the book so we don't miss the forest for the trees. This book is ultimately about two kingdoms competing for the hearts of men. Two kingdoms competing for the hearts of men. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of men, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Rome. That's what this book is really all about. Who's going to win this battle for the hearts of men? And isn't that the way it's always been? Men versus God. Men competing with God for the hearts of, of men. Satan, if we can even be even deeper with it, Satan trying to compete with God for the hearts of men. Now, on the surface, when it comes to people and who they're following the most or influenced by the most, when it comes, when it comes between God and Satan, who has the most followers? 
So the implication of that is Satan has the most followers. Is that right? Can't you just see that? Didn't Jesus say that in Matthew 7, 13 and 14? It's exactly right. Satan has the most followers. More people want to follow evil than good. More people want to walk in darkness than light. But just because Satan may have more people being influenced and following him, just because he may be the prince of the power of the air, as Paul says, does that mean he's going to win ultimately the spiritual battle? No, it doesn't mean that at all. And so this book is about two kingdoms competing for the hearts of men. And I want to suggest that this reality that is found in Revelation continues to exist today, doesn't it? Today, there is a competition, a spiritual competition taking place between God and Satan. Today, there is God, the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of men. And people have to make a choice. They have to make a choice. Who will you allow to rule in your hearts? Who will I allow to rule in my heart? God or Satan? Will I be more devoted to the kingdom of God or the kingdom of men? That was the main question. These Christians had to answer for themselves as they lived in a time when a empire was trying to persuade them and force them even to bow down to a man as God. And in so many ways, that kind of stuff is still existing today. Idolatry is still a very prevalent sin, even in our time today. And so let's go to Revelation 5 now. Let's go back to Revelation 5 and verse 5. Revelation 5 and verse 5. In Revelation 5 and verse 5, Jesus is described in three very powerful ways. What are the three powerful ways in which the Lord is described in Revelation 5 and verse 5? And put verse 6 with it also. He's described, give me one first. What is one way he's described in that text? As a lion. A lion from where? From the tribe of Judah. What's the second way he's described? As a lamb that has been slain. And then the third way he's described in verse 5, the root of David. So those are the three ways in which the Lord is described. We know that's Jesus. He's a lamb. As the lamb, he is the fulfillment of the prophecies concerning the sacrifice for sins. That's why he's a lamb. John 1.29. When John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the lamb because he fulfills the prophecies concerning the sacrifice for sins. He's the, he is the fulfillment of the words of Isaiah and Isaiah 53. As the root of David, he is the fulfillment of the prophecies concerning David, King David. He is a descendant of David, is he not? David came from Judah. Jesus came from Judah. Jesus was born where? Bethlehem. Who was from Bethlehem? David was from Bethlehem. Jesus reigns on whose throne forever? According to the Bible in 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13. Who did Jesus, whose throne did Jesus establish forever? The throne of David. He established the throne of David forever. Today he reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords. Because he is a descendant of David, he established David's throne forever. And so as the root of David, he is the fulfillment of all the prophecies concerning David's offspring. And as the line from the tribe of Judah, he is the fulfillment and the ultimate expression of everything that Jacob in Genesis 49 said about the tribe of Judah. 
He is praised as the Lord. Remember, the Bible says that, that Judah, the, Judah's descendants will be praised. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that. We are here tonight to praise Jesus. He is victorious over his enemies. Judah would be a conquering tribe. They would fight and be victorious. David is a great expression of that, but Jesus is the ultimate expression of that. Jesus is victorious over his enemies. Jesus is strong and he's mighty like a lion. David was a strong and mighty king. Caleb was a strong and mighty warrior. Both of those men came from Judah, and Jesus is strong and mighty in the highest way as a lion. And the righteous scepter, the righteous spiritual scepter, never departs from Jesus. Remember, that's what was said concerning Judas' descendants. Ultimately, the righteous scepter would not depart from Shiloh. Shiloh, reference to the Messiah. Jesus holds the righteous scepter today, and he will hold it forever. Now, I want you to go in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Keep your finger there, Revelation 5. Let's look at something in 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to study 1 Corinthians 15 on Sunday. We're going to study it Sunday. Uh, so I won't get too deep into it because I don't want to go too much into my lesson. But I do want to show you a few things here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse number 20, the Apostle Paul says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead. Verse 20. The first fruits of those who are asleep. The first fruits. For since by man came death. Now that right there is a reference to who? By man came death. That's Adam. Because Adam, death entered into the world because of his sin. Physical death, I believe, but certainly spiritual death, even more importantly. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. Now the man there is a reference to who? That's Jesus. So through one man comes into the world death. Through another man comes, comes the resurrection of the dead, being able to be raised to never die again. There's a contrast here between Adam and Jesus. For as in Adam all die because of Adam, and not that we inherit Adam's sin, that's not the point. But Adam introduced sin into the world, brought sin into the world, and we've all followed in his, foot, in his footsteps, haven't we? We've all done that. So also in Christ, in Christ, all will be made alive. That is, those who follow Christ will be made alive again when they're raised up. But each in his own order, Christ was the first fruits. The first fruits is the best. That's the best of the crops. He was the first to be raised and never die again. And he's the best of that, of that crop. But after that, those at Christ who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he is abolished, all rule and authority and power. So notice, there's going to come a time when Christ will hand the kingdom over to who? He's going to hand it over to the Father. When is that going to happen according to what Paul says there? That will happen at the end. That will happen at the end of all things. He will hand the kingdom over. He will present his bride to the Father. That's us. And when that takes place, he will abolish all rule and authority and power for he must reign. He must reign as he's reigning now until what? He has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that is abolished will be death. 
And so let's ask a few questions here as we continue to think about the conquering king here, and then we're going to finish up Revelation. Paul here talks about the reign of Christ. That's what we're studying in Revelation, the reign of Jesus Christ, a victorious Christ. Jesus must reign, according to Paul, until when? Until what is abolished? The last what? The last enemy must be abolished. Okay? What is the last enemy? Death. So let me ask you this. Has the last enemy been abolished? Has it been abolished? How can you tell if it's not been? How can you tell that it hasn't been abolished? There you go. It's pretty obvious it hadn't been abolished, right? Because guess what? Unless the Lord comes back first, what's going to happen to all of us? We're going to die. People are dying all the time. So death, while Jesus conquered death himself by being raised, death still has some power in a sense. It still continues to plague mankind because men are dying. In fact, not only are men dying physically, but how else are men dying? They're dying spiritually. There was a time, for those of us who are Christians, there was a time when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, right? But, but we came to Christ, and through Christ we're able to live. We're able to live forever if we follow him and do his will. But my point is, both physical death and spiritual death continue, continue on. But when Christ comes again, and he comes as the conquering king, he's going to do away with both of those things for good. They will no longer be a problem for God's greatest creation. Do you, do you see that there in the text? That's what the apostle is saying. And so while Christ is a victorious king, there is an enemy to, yet to be abolished for good. Not saying Jesus did not experience victory over death because he did. He was raised, but death still continues on and will be done away with for good when Jesus comes again. That's what Paul is saying. That's what he's saying there. And so before we go back to Revelation real quick, is there anything, to some, any comments people may want to make right now concerning what we've talked about thus far? Anybody, please, please feel free to. Yes, sir, Brother Mitch. Go ahead, sir. Romans 5, you say? No, that, that's good, Mitch. Uh, yes, Romans 5. He mentioned Romans 5, 12 through 17, which is a great text. Paul in Romans really deals with this same thing. And, and like you said, it's amplified even more so. And there's that same contrast there uh, between Adam and Jesus. And what, is, what was brought through Adam contrasted to what is brought through Jesus. So that's good. If anyone wants to write that down for further study, I would recommend that. Romans 5. 12 through 17. Anyone else? May I take one more comment before we move on? Anyone else have a comment? Does all this make sense so far? Y'all looking at me kind of weird right now. Y'all with me? Does it make sense? All right. Let's keep going. Okay. Let's go back to the lion and the lamb. The lion and the lamb, verse 7. Let's pick up with verse 7. Okay. So we've seen Jesus presented as the lamb and the lion. What does he, the lion and the lamb, the lion and the lamb, 
What does he do with the book that is in the right hand of God, according to verse number seven? What does he do with the book? Remember this book with the seven seals? That, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a big part of Revelation, that book, okay? And uh, what, is the, what does the lion and the lamb do with that book? He takes it out of God's hand. He takes it out of his hand. It says he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him, God the Father, who sat on the throne. So the lamb takes the book, this book that everybody's crying about, this book that nobody can open in heaven. Nobody on the earth, nobody in heaven can open this book. But the, but the lamb and the lion is able to do that. In fact, the implication of that is he's the only one able to do that. He's the only one qualified to do that. He comes. He comes onto the scene. And he takes the book out of the right hand of God. Now, how did those in heaven respond to that? When we, look at, when we start with verse 8 and look through the rest of the chapter, and that's going to be the rest of this study, the rest of this study is about how those in heaven responded to what happens when the lamb takes the book. Brother Don, you have your hand up, so I didn't want to overlook you. Okay. Okay. Uh, you got, I thought you had, it's kind of halfway up there. Okay. So, so how, did they, how did they respond to this? Well, let's look at verse 8. Look at verse 8. And I hope, you, I hope you had time to read this ahead of time. We read the whole chapter last time. But in verse 8, what do you see the, those in heaven doing when they see the lamb take the book? How would you summarize verse 8? Yes, she said they fall down. They fall down before Christ. That's verse 8. When he had taken the book, when the lamb and the lion had taken the book, the, 24, the four, I'm sorry, living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. They fall down before the lamb. Each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers. Notice that the prayers of the saints. Now, let me just say something about this, and I'll get, if you had a comment on it, I'll take it in just a, just a minute or so. Let me just emphasize again, please. Let me emphasize again that none of this, none of this is to be taken literal. And I know it's hard not to do that. I get it. I, I struggle with it. I struggle with it. But we got to remember this is all signified stuff. This is signified language to emphasize a point. It's trying to emphasize a victorious Jesus. That's, that's, that's the point. If you don't remember anything else from this study, remember that we're, we're considering a victorious Jesus. Okay, don't get bogged down trying to make all this literal. That's a mistake. Jesus is not a literal lamb, is he? Is he a literal lamb? No. Is he a literal lion? No. They're not literally 24 elders here. Remember we said a couple of studies ago that that probably represented what? The totality, right, of God's people, those from the old covenant and the new covenant who have faithfully served the Lord. The harp. Is there really a harp in heaven? Really? I know we see them in the cartoons and stuff, but is there really a physical harp in a, in a spiritual place heaven? Really? There's really angels on clouds playing harps? Come on. I remember being in school one time. I was in high school and I was talking with this girl and she tried to use this passage to justify instrumental music in church. What is how was being how worship is done in heaven have to do with how worship is done on the earth? That's the first question. 
But secondly, are you mean to tell me there's a literal piano and a literal guitar and a literal harp in heaven? We've totally missed it. That's not the point. There's no literal harp here. This is signified. And, and, the, and the golden bowls of incense, are those literal golden bowls of incense in heaven? No. In fact, we're told exactly what they represent in the text, aren't we? What do they represent? The prayers of the saints. That's what they represent. Now, when you, when you read about that, the prayers of the saints, and these golden bowls that signify that full of incense, what, what application do you make from that? What, what do you get from that concerning your prayers and our prayers? They're valuable to God. They're actually going up to God. We're not just talking and it's just going this far and that's it and we're just wasting our time. God is, is hearing our prayers. They're going up to him. That's what I take from that, too. Brother John, yes, sir, go ahead, sir. They're pleasing to God, coming up like incense before him. So that's comforting that the prayers of the saints at this time, and they, believe me, a lot of prayers were going up because they're being persecuted. God was getting them all. They were going up before him. Yes, sir, Lance, go ahead, sir. Yeah, this, this is actually a really good example of the mockable language transitioning to the literal. Yes. We got this bold incense. So we have this picture in our mind, but what is it? It's prayers of the saints. And so you actually see that is a great example like you were saying you have the combination here of the figurative and the literal you have the figurative language but we're told what it represented in the literal sense the golden bowls of incense represent prayers and we saw that in Revelation 1 when it talked about the lampstands and, and, and what those represented so uh, they represented the churches so some there are times in Revelation when the symbolic or apocalyptic language is explained to us, and we don't have to guess about it. We don't have to be like, well, I think it means this. No, we know what that represented because the Bible says so, and I like that. I like that a lot. Brother Don, yes, sir. The shadow of these things in the temple, you had the, the cherubim covering the mercy seat. And in Solomon's temple, you had the statues of the cherubim beside it. So there's four cherubim. They are guarding, guarding the covenant, in particular the mercy seat. You see that same transferred into Ezekiel, and you see it here. The throne is surrounded by those same creatures, symbolic in the temple, symbolic in Ezekiel, but those living beings surround the throne, and they are protecting the throne. Nobody can touch the throne, throne except for the Son, who now touches not the chunk of gold, That right there, what you see here in Revelation, is definitely tied in a strong way to the construction of the tabernacle, the holy place, the most holy place, and then later, later the temple. It's all over there. So I hope y'all can see what Don is saying there, because that is a good point. So let's keep going here, 9 and 10. So right now, we see people falling down in heaven because Jesus, Jesus is able to take the book. That's what you see so far. But not only do they fall down, they sing something. What do they sing according to verses 9 and 10? A new song. They sing a new song. Do you see that? Let's go back to it. It says, verse 9, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, lamb, lion, 
to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your own blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Okay, let me just say a few things about this uninterrupted, if you don't mind, please. First, well, I shouldn't have said that so quick because I got a question I want to ask you. Let me ask my question, then I'll get to the monologue. Does this remind you of anything else in the Bible, this new song? We say it again? So it reminds you of the Psalms. That's a good observation. What about something? We'll say it louder. What happened when the children of Israel got to Egypt? They crossed the Red Sea by the power of God, and they saw Pharaoh's army get drowned in the sea. What did they do after that? They sang a new song. Exodus 15. Read Exodus 15. I think this is a, I think this is a reference to that. In Exodus 15, the people of God praised and celebrated a great victory that was given by God over enemies that were oppressing them. And here you find a song being sang to praise and celebrate victory that will come from the Messiah. Because remember, Moses was a type of what, ultimately? He's a type of Jesus. He's a type of Christ. He was a lawgiver and deliverer, and Jesus would be the ultimate lawgiver and deliverer. In fact, Moses said in Deuteronomy 18 that there was going to be a, come a prophet after him later, and he called that prophet the prophet. And he said, you will listen to him. You're going to listen to him over me. So you have something similar taking place here, this new song being sang when God's people are going to be delivered from oppression. That's Exodus 15. Now, let's just notice the song. I'm just going to hit a few highlights on the song, and I wish I had more time. But let's just look at a few things here. First, they, they praise Jesus in this song as because, I'm sorry, he's worthy. He is worthy. Do you see that? He is worthy because he alone, according to the text, he alone is able and worthy to do what? Open the book. He's the only one that can do it. Remember, that's what they were crying about in heaven. Remember that? That's what John was crying about. Nobody can open this book, and this book contains the outcome to the battle. It contains the end of the story, and nobody can open it. And if nobody can open it, that means we're going to lose. God's kingdom will be wiped out. But the lamb comes onto the scene, and he takes the book, and he's going to break the book. And people in heaven are celebrating that God's kingdom will prevail, and it's going to prevail only because of him. Only because of the lamb, only because he alone is able to break the book with the seals. Now, why else is he worthy? Well, notice why he's worthy, why he's able to open the books, why he's the only one qualified to do it. Notice the song says because he was slain. You see that he was slain. He was slain for our sins. This goes back to being the lamb of God. He purchased with his blood. He purchased with his blood. What does it say? A people. Men from every tribe and tongue and nation. Isn't that exactly what the church is? Isn't that exactly what we got in this room right now? People from all walks of life. People from different nationalities. People who can speak different languages. People who have different backgrounds and come from different cultures. Men and women. Jesus, through Jesus, 
All people, Jews and Gentiles, are able to be brought into the family of God. Jesus made that possible because he was slain. That's possible through his blood, the scripture says. He's also the only one worthy to do this because through him we are able to be a kingdom. We are a kingdom right now. The, the premillennialists will say that's not true. They'll say the kingdom will be established much later. The Jews, those who practice Judaism to whatever degree today, they're still waiting for another Messiah or the Messiah, they would say, because they reject Jesus. They're waiting for the Messiah to come and kick the Muslims off of their territory, they say, and establish his kingdom again in Israel. A physical kingdom, that's what they're looking for. They reject Jesus. But the Bible says that Jesus is the Messiah. He has established his kingdom. It's established right now. He established it 2,000 years ago. Remember what John the Baptist preached and Jesus? They said, repent. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. At hand means what? It's about to happen shortly. Same language you find in Revelation. Shortly come to pass. The same idea. Revelation 1 and verse 9. Revelation 1 and verse 9, John says that he was a fellow partaker in the tribulation and what? Kingdom. John says that he was part of the kingdom in his time, 2,000 years ago. It's already been established, and we're part of it if we're Christians. So we're part of a kingdom. We're also able to be priests. Did you know you're a priest? You're a priest. If you're a Christian, if you're part of the kingdom, who were able to be the priests under the old covenant? Levites, and only those who came from Levi, right? Only those. That's exactly right. There was even limitations with that. I mean, just because you were from Levi didn't automatically mean you were going to be a priest. There were even more stipulations. Absolutely. But under Jesus' priesthood, because Jesus has the priesthood. That's the book of Hebrews teaches that, and he's the high priest. So under his priesthood, the spiritual priesthood. Who are the priests? We are the priests. You're a priest. I'm a priest. You're a priest. You're a priest. If you're a Christian, everybody's a priest. Everybody. What are the responsibility of priests? Can somebody tell me? We offer sacrifices, right? Teach. We serve. We proclaim the excellencies of God. That's what Peter said, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, after saying that he's made us to be a kingdom and priest. We serve, we minister, we offer spiritual sacrifices, Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Those are the kind of things we do. Brother Don, yes, sir. You keep the light going, the light going and going, and keep that golden altar of prayer going. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, you're the light. You're the light of the world. We read about here in Revelation, the prayers are going up. They're going up before God. So always remember every day, remember you're a priest. Remember that. We also are able to reign on the earth. How often do you think about that? How often do you think about that you are reigning on the earth? I think we miss that so often. I think we think our time to reign with Christ is later. No, we reign with Christ now, the Bible says. We reign on the earth as, as a kingdom and priest. We're important to God now. We reign with the Lord now. And so because Jesus is worthy to open the book, a new song is sang in heaven. 
a new song, a song of victory. But they're not the only ones celebrating and praising Jesus. There are two other spiritual beings mentioned here also. In verses 11 and 12, you also have angels. You see that? Verse 11 and 12 talk about the angels. He says, I looked and heard the voices of many angels around the throne. And then you got living creatures and you got elders. And then you got in verses 13 and 14, every created thing in heaven, every created thing in heaven. You see, while God, the father, God, the son and God, the Holy Spirit are not created, they're deity. There are created things in heaven. Angels are wonderful. Psalm 148. Angels have been created by God to minister and to serve God's purposes. So you got every created thing in heaven, every created thing on the earth, under the earth, in the sea. The bottom line is everything that is devoted to God, everything that has allegiance to God, everything, especially behind the spiritual curtain that can really see what's going on, is praising the Lamb because he's the only one. He's the only one that can open the book. They know this is a big deal. And so I want you to picture this in your mind, okay? Can you picture this? Go back to Revelation 4 and picture this. You got God the Father on his throne. Can you see that? Can you try to see that? God the Father's on the throne, and he's being worshipped. He's being praised. You have spiritual beings going around the throne saying, holy, holy, holy. And then there's Jesus, the lion and the lamb. And he's able to take this book after there's a lot of grief in heaven because nobody's able to open it. He comes onto the scene. He enters the picture. He takes the book. And he's going to break these seals. And each seal will reveal a part of the story of Revelation. It's going to be good stuff and bad stuff. And as Jesus enters the scene, and he's the only one qualified to do it, everybody in heaven celebrates. Everybody in heaven worships. They praise him. They give glory and honor to him and his father. And you know what else they have because of this? It's a word that starts with an H. They have hope. Hope. We need hope, don't we? We need hope, especially in this world we're living in now, it's easy to lose hope. Hope is one of the most important things we have as Christians. And Jesus, able to, his ability to break these seals, gave some hope to people who thought there was no hope. They're, they're getting beat down. They're losing their families, they're losing their freedom, they're losing their jobs, losing everything. Because a dominant empire, the greatest empire the world had ever seen at that point, up to that point, is trying to stomp out the church. But the lamb comes on. He gives them hope. He gives them the hope of victory. You see, Revelation, Revelation is really, a, it's a story of, of, a, of a battle, an army, two armies, two wars, or a war taking place between two armies. And the whole point of the book is very simple. Is trying to persuade these Christians to stay in the right army, to stay on the right team. Don't go to the losing side. Don't get fooled by what you're seeing with the physical eye. If you leave Jesus, you will lose. You will lose. This is only, this is only halftime. 
See, Stan and I, we, we're big basketball guys. We know about a team can be down by 40 at halftime. But when the third and fourth quarter comes, they can, that can change quick. Y'all remember, I'm a football guy too. Do any of y'all remember the football game that took place uh, when the Buffalo Bills were making their run? They went to four straight Super Bowls in the early 90s. Y'all remember that? And there was a game when the Houston Oilers were beating them down pretty good. Y'all remember that? Any of y'all remember that game? They were getting beat down by like four or five touchdowns before halftime. But you know what happened in the second half? If you had turned that TV off, you would have missed it. You would have missed history. Because they came back and they won that game. And they would go on to the Super Bowl. And, and that's how you got to kind of look at Revelation. From the, from the perspective of these early Christians, it may look bad, but we just had halftime. The Lamb is coming. And he will lead them to victory. Brother Mitch, yes, sir. I missed that, Mitch. That's a good observation there. Are you, are you talking about, and I'm sorry I missed that, but that's in chapter 5, right? Oh, verse 12, yes. Oh, there you go. So you're talking about power, riches, wisdom, might, honor, glory, blessing. There that is. Yeah, that's a good observation. Verse 12, seven. Seven wonderful terms to describe the Lamb. Good observation. Let me close with one more question real quick, real quick. Because um, I didn't hear the second bell. If, I did, if, I, if it did, forgive me. But let me ask one more question. If you were a Christian living during this time and you, and you read this, would you be comforted by this message? Why would you be comforted? The power of God. And you know you're going to win ultimately. This is the DVR of it. We know we're going to win. What about us today? Do you get any comfort when you read this today and the world you're living in right now? Can somebody tell me why this should comfort us today? It's the same thing. It's the same thing. And I think that's important to help us keep perspective because we keep, we, it's easy for us to get discouraged as we look at all that's going on and the advancements of so many of these sins in our culture. But the message of Revelation is still relevant because it shows us that we're on the winning side. We're still on the winning side. So I hope that will encourage you. Brother Don, and then you had something. Did you say something? There's another aspect of this to keep track of as we go through. Before the, the two songs are sung at chapter 15, there's a prophecy that the Good. Brother Greg, go right ahead and we're closing. Absolutely. Good thought. Point, point very well taken. That's a good way to end our class. Let's stop right there. We'll pick up with Revelation 6, Lord willing, on Sunday. Thank you.